Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Hello, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we are so blessed to have Pastor Chris Quintana back with us. We've got a couple things on the docket to discuss. We may get to the salt and light issue in America or the lack thereof. Also, a Barna survey of thousands of pastors. Uh, basically, not surprising, but a 37% biblical worldview, 37% of them. So we're going to talk about how that affects the church and those that are in the pews and the congregations when their pastors and leaders and teachers don't even have that biblical worldview. But we're going to start with talking about Israel and Bible prophecy and the Abraham Accords. And Chris, welcome back to the podcast, brother. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Very excited about what we're talking about today. Yeah, Mary's uh, chomping at the bit there to kick things off, so let's just <laughs> dive into this, Mary. Hey, Chris, good to, good to hear you again. Um, you too, Mary. In, in early December, and this sort of escaped my radar for some reason, uh, we had a headline from the Jewish News Syndicate. Uh, it says, World Leaders Propel Abraham Accords Forward at Rome Summit, and it was this global, uh, global leadership summit in Rome with... Uh, uh, 30 world leaders or so, and it says um, they're focusing on new ways to increase peace and tolerance uh, amongst the three Abrahamic religions. Apparently, that's why they're called the Abraham Accords. But it also says that the summit celebrated the seismic change of the Abraham Accords. Now, my understanding when Trump was involved that this was mostly a business deal. This was huh. how to increase uh, you know, trade and all these other things. But I'm suspecting there's something more to this foundationally, uh, getting its foot in the door in the Middle East. Chris, what's your take on the Abraham Accords? Um, well, they came on my radar the moment that uh, our government first published them. And uh, the first time I ever presented anything on it was to the church in California before we moved. So it was uh, wow. January of 2020 mm-hmm. when I first started to, to okay. read into this, looking at the maps, looking at the proposals. And what I realized, it didn't take more than the first two paragraphs, just in the preface of it, to realize how unusual this this was. Because how many times have we been there and listened to the talking heads talk about, well, if you give up some land, you can get peace. And it's, I, I think you and I were talking about this yesterday, Mayor, that it's like Humpty Dumpty and the king's horses and the king's <laughs> yeah. men are in this revolving door of trying to put Humpty back together again. Right. And so give up land, you never get peace, you just keep giving up land. In this case, it was intended to do a few things. It was, forget about the land, the land is really not much contested right now, though people like to make it as though it is, but how about if we could marginalize the people that stand in the way of peace by doing an end around them and starting to do business and normalize relationships with other Muslim nations and that would put a downward pressure on all of the people that have a vested interest in still making the Palestinians, quote-unquote, the victim. Hmm. And it has a real similarity to the way it is here with race relations in our country, um, that, that the people who are the biggest purveyors of, you know, 
systemic racism like the Sharptons and Jacksons of the world, um, <laughs> if they ever admitted that we got past the problem, then they have no reason to exist. Right. That's a great insight, Chris. Yeah, and thank yeah, you for the, people mad. I have to be careful. <laughs> no, uh, and also thank you for the Humpty Dumpty reference that <laughs> allows the average person to understand what we're talking about. Great analogy. Thank you. <laughs> so you sent us some maps. Do you want to mm-hmm. try to dive into those and kind of explain for the podcast and uh, radio audience uh, what we're talking about specifically when it comes to land and uh, the occupiers? <laughs> yes. Um, what I find really interesting about the, uh, the maps of the Abraham Accords, and I know that I've sent those to you, it's really when you see what they propose to do with land that is really already kind of segmented. So when you look at the, the current state of things, in the 67 war, um, there was, they were attacked, obviously, Israel was, and they were able to take sections of the the country that they weren't necessarily in control of before and there are three main pieces of it up in the north along the syrian border and along the lebanese border where the three countries meet there is to the eastern border of what's referred to as the golan heights Mm -hmm. up around the sea of galilee and north of it north and, and east of it so the Golan Heights are strategic. They're the high, the high ground that's there. Israel took it back for security reasons, no question. Mm-hmm. What you find the biggest allotment of the land is what we is what's known as the West Bank, and but to the Jew, it's it's known as Judea Samaria, and it's the largest section by far of of what we're talking about, and it wasn't necessarily under the control of Israel. But they took control of it and then allowed uh, the, the non-Jewish people places within it to live. And they also took back the territory we know as the Gaza Strip, which is in the southwestern um, portion along the Mediterranean and the Egyptian border. Mm-hmm. So they took control of those areas, though, as we know with Gaza, they gave that back. And that's going to be a very, very prominent thing when it comes to the Abraham Accords, and I'll point that out when we get a moment. So those three major land areas were taken back in the 67 war, and uh, these these maps are easy to find uh, just in an Internet search. It's very mm-hmm. simple to find them. Mm-hmm. What's really fascinating is when you take a look at when Israel was still being talked about as a potential back in 1947, there was what was known as the the partition plan. Mm-hmm. And it was, let's propose that there will be an Arab and a Jewish state living side by side, using the same kind of terminology we hear talked about all the time here. And when you get a chance to look at that proposed land, uh, land allotment, it looks like what is modern day, mostly what we see that Israel took after the 67 war. Up till 40, from 48 to 67, it was just very loosely partitioned. The 67 war really caused a a real defined lines between territories. But when you start to overlay these maps of what was there, what was proposed in 1947, what Israel ended up taking in 1967, but then looking at what is proposed and has been agreed to by some of the the members and some of the people participating in the Abraham Accords, it's a hybrid of 
of both of those other two mm-hmm. things. So what, what most Christians, if they, if they really care about the topic, they are going to say, well, you should never give land for peace. It's not their land to give. God won't allow it. it you know, they go through saying all of those types of things. And I don't disagree with that. But anybody who's actually been in the land knows that, especially when you get into Judea, Samaria, or the West Bank, there are enclaves of, of Jewish people and settlements. But by and large, a lot of it is kind of uninhabited, but it's controlled by what is known as the Palestinian Authority, and the Abraham Accords looks to just formalize what's already accepted and the way that things are currently. Can we go back, please, um, and then before we get to the specifics of the Abraham Accords, and the Bible in Genesis, God promises this land to his people. So you said in 1967 the people of Israel, the, the, the Jews, took back these certain portions of land. Can you explain that? What do you mean took back when it was already theirs according to God's map? Yeah, as far as God is concerned, I mean, let's be honest. Look, look at what he promised to Abraham back in chapter 15 of Genesis. Uh, it encompasses most of Jordan, a lot of Syria, mm-hmm. all the way down into Iraq and yeah. Egypt, because he told them that Euphrates uh, to, um, to the Nile. But that was never realized, and we all know that. Um, and so it wasn't as though God said, well, you can't go there now. It's just this was what was uh, open to you, but you didn't take it. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, um, Abraham sojourned through areas that were given to him, and he didn't even know it. <laughs> but he made his way all the way to, uh, to Israel. But if we think about the allotment of land when they finally took possession of it, really most people don't realize this. Abraham was given the promise, here's what the land is that I'm going to give to you. It was never realized until Joshua brought the people in after Moses had died. Mm. But even at that, there were three tribes that lived on the east of the Jordan in what is modern-day Jordan, right up to the Syrian border, and that was the the tribes of Gad, um, Reuben, and half of Manasseh lived to the east of the Jordan River in that valley. So that's never even discussed. What is now considered the West Bank is what what had been known traditionally as Transjordan. And it was an area that nobody really cared about. Even now, you know, we look at it and everybody gets acid reflux over it (laughs) because it belongs to the Jews. But before that, they didn't care about it. Mm. It was just uninhabited. Nobody could, nobody really cared much about it until it became of interest to the Jews. Mm -hmm. That's when everything changed. And when you read about uh, Israel being a cup of trembling, it's not because Mm. the world wonders what should we do about Israel. The world, by and large, hates Israel and doesn't even understand why they hate them. Yeah. They just do because it's a spiritual matter. Yep. They, they just do. I, I have a question for you, Chris. Um, as far as the Golan goes, Syria and Russia have been saber-rattling for a long time, and I, I guess one of these days I presume they're just going to show up there and plant a flag. So we know that's real strategic. <laughs> the other thing that believers are curious about with prophecies about a third temple is the Temple Mount. And when, is Israel going to take that back? Will it be shared? To me, those are two very mm. important pieces of this puzzle. Do you know anything about those two areas when it comes to these accords or a future accord or anything like that? Yeah, and interestingly enough, if you remember President Trump, who really was the champion of this, though there were a lot of other Mm -hmm. people involved, uh, pretty much made the whole matter of the Golan Heights a non-starter. 
because um, he said, look, the Golan Heights belongs to Israel. It always will be mm-hmm. a strategic matter. So they can go ahead and jump up and down all that they want to. And they could even, if they managed to get past the security of Israel, yeah. plant the flag there. But there's no way Israel's giving that high ground up. Right. They just won't. Yeah. Um, it's, it's too strategic. Um, as far as the, the other places, like what we would see in the West Bank and whatnot like that, um, the, their willingness to allow for, they're even proposing dual citizenship for non-Jews living in the West Bank to have dual citizenship if this ever works out. Um, so there was a second part to your question. I'm sorry, Mayor. Yeah, the Temple Mount. What, how is that going to figure, especially if there's prophecies to sure. rebuild the Temple? How in the world is that going to work? Well, you know, again, I know this might get you guys some hate mail. Um, we look at that and say there's just no way that they can do it because yeah. the Muslims will not allow such a thing. It will start a war. Um, and here's my simple answer to that. Uh, the, the hatred that, that Muslims have towards Jews is spiritual, yeah. and the devil pulls their strings because he's their God, whether they realize it or not. So for him to get them to think in another direction that it would be somehow okay— he can do with him, with them as he wills because mm-hmm. he owns them anyway. Mm-hmm. So getting them to agree to something that they would feel that somehow is in their interest that we don't quite see now, mm-hmm. to get them to agree to something like that, um, it's not going to be a, a, a tough lift as far as the devil's concerned. He'll just right. sell them another lie. Well, there, there is, to me, they're, they're kind of laying a little groundwork because the summit, this global summit in Rome culminated with the adoption of something called the Abrahamic Values Pledge, which states, we are united by our shared Abraham values that have sustained our societies for thousands of years. We take immense pride in our mutual responsibility for one another. I mean, there's going to mm. have to, there, there's so much delusion, like you said, spiritual delusion over all this. But I think somehow, simplistically, they're thinking they can make it work with all three who call Abraham their father. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we may not see it now, but I don't know. It seems to and, me that that's inevitable in some way. And I agree with that, which, which works perfectly with this. We know that, that uh, when we talk about the rebuilt temple, it's not going to be the same, the same footprint as the old one was, because mm-hmm. uh, we read in the Bible that God says, look, don't worry about the outer court. It's been given over uh, to the Gentiles. Right. But if you're going to try to say to the Muslims, hey, look, why don't we put down our swords and you know, guns or whatever you want to say, the Israel can build their temple without infringing on the Dome of the Rock, and they can be side by side. Mm-hmm. This will be a, a way you know, that, that God is able to, or in their case, Allah, is able to bring together the sons of Abraham together. You know, you can just see a, a, this is easily plausible, and you could put a temple in place without destroying the Dome of the Rock. Very interesting. Mm. Anxious to see it. Well, I, I'm going to view that from heaven, I guess. You know, that's my... <laughs> <laughs> As will we all. Yeah. So, Chris, we've got five more minutes left in this first segment. And before we go on and maybe get into even some more specifics, what would be, for, for the person that really hasn't been paying attention here, what would be the main differences in the two administrations in their approach to Israel and, you know, you might want to call it peace or whatever, but the, the Trump administration versus the Biden administration, has has much changed in the last couple of years? Massively so. Um, see, when you think about Trump, Trump's a businessman. He was a CEO kind of person. He's not a politician. Mm-hmm. 
So he didn't really care about the politics of the whole thing. It's just this makes sense. And he seemed to have a love for guys like Benjamin Netanyahu and the Jewish people. He seemed to be just a a very pragmatic guy. Let's move the embassy. Obviously, it should be in Jerusalem. It's stupid to have it in Tel Aviv. (laughs) You know, Jerusalem is their capital. Let's do business. It's where the Knesset is. Mm -hmm. So he just, it was a very pragmatic thing. And it seemed as though he would, he was much more favorable to the Jewish side of it than he was to the, quote, Palestinian side of it. And that's obvious when you read through the pages of this. Flip the script, and now Benjamin Netanyahu's off of, until recently, he's off of the stage, and, the, you know, the, about the same time that you can almost say simultaneously, but not quite. But uh, the Biden administration and the administration that was taking place after Netanyahu, uh, they were just subversive. I can actually just say subversive to the the well-being of Israel. So, um, frankly, if I can be, I hope it doesn't sound uncharitable, but Biden doesn't know how to order his own lunch. Mm -hmm. So it's the people who are behind him in the administration are incredibly antagonistic towards Israel. Mm. And so, you know, their their way of, of looking at this, I don't think that they have any desire to see the Abraham Accords uh, favorable as Trump did. But interestingly enough, the framework doesn't need the U.S. to make it work. Okay. Okay. Um, well, Chris, I, I actually have a question for you here, uh, too, about um, <laughs> uh, Israel just got a new um, Speaker of the House or Speaker of the Knesset, which is more than, than we are able to muster in this country. <laughs> um, but and, and, of course, he's very, very sharp because several years ago uh, in America, in a Boston, event in Boston, an American Jewish woman uh, asked him, why does Israel respond so forcefully to acts of terror, obvious daily threats, acts of terror in Israel? You know, why do they go in with all their guns blazing over an act of terror? And he said this, he said, when the Palestinians lower their guns, there will be no more war. When the Israelis lower their guns, there'll be no more Israelis. So that is mm-hmm. how, and this guy is obviously very sharp. Can we use him here as a speaker of the house? I don't know. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, so I, I think of these impediments to peace because Israel, and rightly so, they, um, because of what they battle every day that never makes the media, mm-hmm. they're going to have to be awfully careful about any peace and very persuaded that it's in their best interests. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the Year said something very, very similar. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, about loving death as much as we love life type of it. Yes. Um, and you've seen variations of it, but exactly. The the thing is, I, I've said it this way, if you took everything militarily that Israel has and given it to the, give it to the Palestinians uh, in the West Bank and then those, the terrorists in Gaza, Israel wouldn't even function by the end of the day. They would be wow. decimated. So, you know, what, what uh, Israel has is more defensive, um, but bad guys would love them to be offensive, and they would like to wipe them from the planet. We know that. Mm-hmm. So, interestingly enough, I know we can do this in the, after the break, but the Abraham Accords looks to marginalize those kinds of people. Hmm. Well, it gets interesting from here, doesn't it? Yeah, we're not going to jump into another question because we only have a minute uh, before we have to take a, a break. But, um, Chris, can people get this information? I mean, the maps, you put them all together in a, a PDF, and you've done presentations on this. What's the best place for people to go to have a, a really good idea of what we're talking about this morning? Sure. They can just do a, a simple Internet search for the uh, Israel 
uh, pre-67 borders. Okay. Um, the 1947 proposed, uh, the UN proposed land allotment. And then um, they can go and pull up the actual peace plan. Um, what it's called is Peace to Prosperity. And uh, it was put out by our government. It was at the Trump White House. I think I even... On uh, on one of them, I, I have the actual website. So I don't know if you want to try to put that in the show notes or whatever. Okay. We'll but, do. Uh, in what I sent you, yeah. We'll do. Thanks, Chris. We've got a whole lot more coming up with Pastor Chris Quintana, along with Mary Danielson and myself on Stand Up for the Truth. Keep it right here. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. All right, we are back with Pastor Chris Quintana, Old Path Ministries. And uh, we're talking about the Abraham Accords. We're talking about Israel and maps and land and all the, the fun things actually relating to Bible prophecy and what's already in Genesis and um, let's pick it up where we left off, Chris. We just talked about the differences in the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And you, before we get back into it, you've got a trip coming up in March, and we were talking a little off air about that. So you can share with our listeners that uh, you're going back there. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, well, we have a trip planned for this coming March, um, the 15th through the 27th. And I've got this nagging feeling in my heart that I just, uh, it's almost, I feel like I'm going to be saying goodbye uh, if we get there in March. What we know is that there's a big um, uh, in resurgence uh, in China of the COVID vaccine, not vaccines, but the COVID virus, the, the, a new variation of it, mainly because they did the same stupid things that we did of shutting down, but for much longer time. Mm-hmm. And now the people's immune systems are trash. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now COVID's running rampant through mm-hmm. there. And you know if it starts to get out to other places, no matter how deadly or not deadly it may be, the powers that be are going to start saying, we got to start locking down, we need mandates, we need mandatory vaccinations, yada, yada, yada. Um, so if our government starts putting in mandatory things like testing and all that to get back into the country, I've got to pull the plug on this mm-hmm. because you can't afford to stay there if you get quarantined. Wow. But... If, if they can make the case for it and people are gullible enough to do it, mm-hmm. there already is talk about the vaccine passports. We've heard that reported on from the G20 meeting this earlier last year. Mm. And so, you know, I just, the day is going to come. We know from scripture that people's day-to-day life and their ability to travel and do anything commercially is going to be curtailed by what becomes the mark. But mm-hmm. we see a lot of that preparation of people's minds and getting them used to such kind of oversight, um, that's going to happen eventually when it comes to, well, we've got to do this for public health and safety. And, you know, I'm, I, for one, am, am never going to get any of the vaccinations, and I'm not going to be signing up for some kind of a passport requiring me to do that just so that I can travel. Right, right. And we're seeing, I think, what we're seeing up here, we have a lot of illness going around right now. And my first thought was, well, yeah, if you're going to lock down and wear masks for a year and a half, we have RSV, we have influenza, we have head colds, we have uh, COVID variations. And most people I know don't want to get tested. So it but the flu went yeah, away. The, the flu, flu was cured. Right. So we're getting a combo platter of all these things. And, and so I'm thinking to myself, well, of course we are, because yeah. that's what you get. And we all knew that that was going to take place. Yeah. Sure. And everything that we've seen reported on 
um, not only was the, the policy ridiculous and, and counterproductive, uh, but the, the suppression of information that would have said otherwise, mm-hmm. we're finding out because of all the Twitter releases, that the government was lying to people yes. and they were suppressing any kind of counter information. Oh. So they made a bad situation far, far worse by awful public policy. Mm-hmm. You know what, Chris, we haven't talked to you since I know we're going to go on a slight tangent here since these revelations have come out, these conspiracy theories that have been proven now conspiracy fact because they were <laughs> the purveyors of misinformation and what what Elon Musk did since he took over Twitter. I want to get your uh, no holds barred commentary on this whole fiasco of most of us going, well, told you so. Sure. Well, I'm very unaccustomed to uh, to no holds barred as right. I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as far as uh, Elon Musk, I, I you know I don't consider him to be a brother in the Lord, but no. I'm just glad that somebody's finally pulling back the the veil of this. Yeah. And there were many of us who just said, you know, we're not being told anything. You, they trot out guys like Anthony Fauci and basically make him a saint where he was just a devil, frankly. What a horrible man. And he has the blood of of thousands, if not tens or even hundreds of thousands of people on his hands, Mm -hmm. and he'll never be held accountable. Um, But our public policy was, oh yeah, well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) As far as, as what's been revealed, it's only the tip of the iceberg, but unfortunately, most of the electorate is so clueless and doesn't look into this stuff that it'll just kind of go away with a bit of a whimper, but for those of us who pay attention. And I, I, I love the, the meme that's out there of, uh, of the guy that says, I need to get a bunch of new conspiracy theories because all my other ones came to pass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, it's, it's potentially infuriating, but it's good that we can laugh about yeah. it. Because there is Seriously. this, there is this delusion. There's this spiritual. People have the these blinders on, and I think one of the big problems is a lot of people, too many people, in my opinion, made up their minds very, very soon mm-hmm. when COVID was unleashed uh, out of China, and people heard s- the beginning reports, and the governments did their whatever they they said they were doing, and then also, okay, people made up their minds, and then there was the great divide ever since. Yeah, yeah. And then they tried to politicize it, and then they tried to, you know, shut or silence, you know, half of the country, yeah. and it, it's just a mess. And I, there's no going back, because as you said, there's no accountability for those who were mm-hmm. actually lying. Right, and then part of it is, and we talked to Patrick Woods about this, uh, the technocracy of Fauci fits that perfect definition, unelected, unaccountable, someone who comes out of the blue and starts telling the politicians and and the people who really have a half a brain how this is supposed to go. And that's never going to change either. Mm. The technocrats now are in control. Yeah. And I, I see more and more of this coming down the pike. I, and I would agree with that. And what a sad statement it is that it only requires half a brain to realize that we're being lied to. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I look at... Um, it's gotten to this point, and this might sound hyperbolic when I say it, but I mean this in, uh, with intensity. Whatever the government says that I should do when it comes mm-hmm. to anything related to COVID, if I do the total opposite, I'm in better shape. Yes. So the idea that yeah. I have absolutely zero, zero trust in anything that I hear from my government on anything related to COVID just tells you how bad things have become. Mm-hmm. And they refuse to relent and go in the other direction and admit what they've done was wrong. Wow. By the way, I want to finish our tangent by just quoting a headline from Rasmussen Reports. 
um, on died suddenly. Now, more than one in four people think someone they know died from the COVID vaccines. We've heard the reports come out that more people that have been vaccinated have died from COVID than those who were unvaccinated. So we're in some just unbelievable times here. Um, and But we have to keep trusting God and move on and do what we can to share the gospel. Uh, Chris, now that was a, quite a long d- detour from the Abraham Accords. Can we go back now to Israel and to uh, wrap up these thoughts? We've got uh, about 10 minutes left in this segment. Yes. Well, see, here's something that people really need to wrap their minds around, and we're so distant from it because it's not our news. But the change in the government in Israel is fascinating yes. to me. Yes. Um, and I'm just going to I just I'm going to excerpt or just read the headlines and comment on just three articles that I'll be doing, you know, um, some things on here myself personally um, at some presentations I'll be doing. But this is just fascinating to me. Netanyahu, here's here's the headline. It's from CBN News, not a place that I go to for much information, but the headline was interesting. Mm-hmm. New Israeli government swearing in begins Netanyahu's sixth term as prime minister. So, yeah, longest serving prime minister, but what's different this time, and most people don't even know how the politics work there. They don't have like what we have is a president and a Congress and then a Supreme Court, our three branches of government. Theirs is is comprised differently. Their prime minister is going to be the one who can put together a governing coalition of what is basically their parliament, the Knesset. It's comprised of 120 members from a number of different parties. You've got to get to 61. And if you can put together a coalition of 61 members of that Knesset, you're going to rule it. And in this case, Netanyahu wins. And he's able to put together a coalition, but it is more orthodox. And it is more right wing, as they like to say it, Hmm. more conservative than any that he has ever had. Mm -hmm. So the new government that is being formed in Israel now has the prime minister back in power that helped put the Abraham Accords Accords in place, now has Hmm. a governing coalition that is far more orthodox, far more religious, and far more right of center than any that he has ever had before. So most people, again, don't realize the politics of it. And I can't wait. I pray to God that we're able to get there in March because I can't wait to see what it looks like when I'm on the ground. Wow. Yeah. The second one of these, Netanyahu's government vows to expand West Bank settlements and annex occupied territory. Huh. Now, that's just something that's being spoken of, and they haven't been a lot of, there haven't been a lot of specifics. But this is a nod to those on the right side of his party, especially the Orthodox, who basically say, call it the West Bank, call it Judea Samaria, call it whatever you want. It belongs to us because we've been given it as a promise for 4,000 years. So now you're starting to see them do the things that makes everybody lose their minds anytime that you start to talk about Israel putting settlements in, quote, the West Bank. And let's remember, Gaza is a non-starter because it's still run by Hamas. So until Hamas can be removed, they can't move forward with part of the Abraham Accords on the business side of it, because it's run by terrorists. Hmm. The Abraham Accord calls Hamas a terrorist organization and that they must be removed because they're an obstacle. So with that, and the third of these, 
this is what I find so interesting. The people who hated Donald Trump and hated everything that, that was, you know, uh, representative of him when they called the America First people or the MAGA or whatever you want to call them, they were the ones who were referred to as fascists and all the rest of it. Most, most of the people throwing around the word fascist couldn't even describe it if you had a gun to their head. Exactly. They just, they, they repeated it because they heard it on a blog or heard it yeah. from somebody on MSNBC. But yeah. most people are just woefully ignorant about this stuff. Listen to this. If everybody remembers before Netanyahu or simultaneously between, I think, his first and second time through, there was a guy named Ehud Barak. Does everybody remember him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So Ehud Barak, you know, a distinguished uh, military career and all the rest of it, but he was definitely left of center. Here's what he says. Ehud Barak says this. Government shows signs of fascism. Mass uh, neo-violent revolt may be needed like an overthrow of the government, but nonviolent, of course. So here you have the left flank of the politics there calling the right fascist. When you start to see guys like that in that high of a profile Mm -hmm. saying of their opponents that they're fascists, you realize that it's not just something that gets thrown around here so loosely. It's happening there as well. Right. Interesting. Right, and I think it's because there's so far left around here that everything to the right is fascism because yeah. because they're so far in the other direction. They There is no farther left you can go. So everything is to the right. Jeez. Yeah, it's basically it's almost ready to come back around like That's the right. north to the south if you're going around the country. That's right. Come and touch yourself. <laughs> I, it, when I look at, at the politics there, the, the never-Trump people that we have here, they have their never-Netanyahu faction mm-hmm. there as well. And they're the same political types of animals as we have here in this country. So Mm. it's really funny because most of the time they can't even explain why. So they just get stuck throwing around labels. Well, he's a fascist. Well, he's a racist. Well, he's a this, he's a that. But they can't give you good explanations as to how or why or give you examples. It's just we're living by slogans and bumper stickers. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what's happening in our country. People are being... Their, their worldviews are being formed by the public education system, by the media, by corporations, by Hollywood. And they, they cannot – they're horrible apologists for their leftist worldview. They can't explain why they believe what they believe oftentimes, but they sure do know the talking points and the accusations. Chris, we have four minutes left in this segment. Let's take a little transition out, come back to America, and let's go into the churches here. Um, Barna just did some more research, and I'm going to just jump to the punchline right away, and we'll continue this on the other side of the break. But there are many pastors today who are just tentative. They're, they're maybe some would say cowardly, but they're hesitant to preach about Bible prophecy, to preach the full counsel of God's Word, to confront evil in their communities, in our culture. And as a result, we have Christians who are hesitant to live out their faith. So your thoughts right off the bat on this Barna survey that really confirmed that only 37, 37% of religious leaders in America have a biblical worldview. And we've seen that, that trajectory of that going down, you know, kind of precipitously over the last few decades. Yeah. So what that basically tells you is that most of the pulpits in America are, are dominated by hirelings. So the fact that uh, that's what's happening, as the old saying, the fish rots from the head down, 
Mm-hmm. Um, that is going to find its way into the rank and file of the people in the church. Wow. So if people don't care about, from the pulpit, don't care about prophecy, the people won't. So they won't know that the world around them is changing like the Bible said. Instead, they're just going to start to come to some other kind of conclusion and just think that it's something that's acceptable, not realizing that it's a sign of where we are in time. Yes, and the, and with the progressivism and the lib- liberal theology entering the church, social justice becoming the primary uh, concern over the gospel, and I don't see the left leaving the church in that way anytime soon. We are just in a Laodicean, to use your word, trajectory, and it's you can't put that back in the tube. Hmm. I totally agree with that. And and so if, if let's just put it this way, and I you've heard me say this. I know I've said it on the program before, but when I would meet with my leadership when I was still a senior pastor, I would say, guys, if we don't start thinking like the devil on how he would want to do things, we, we aren't going to be having our eyes open towards the potential of things. So if I'm the devil, the easiest way to defeat the church is to join it. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the devil has been doing that since you know the beginning of the church, yeah. but it's really kind of ramped up in our time where he gives people all these alternative views mm-hmm. about any variety mm-hmm. of things and it, in the process, damages the veracity of the Scripture and the authority behind it. Yeah. Speaking of prophet, and if I were the devil, uh, you remember Paul Harvey in 1965 in that brilliant radio broadcast, If I Were the Devil? I encourage you guys to, to look that up. Um, it was just astounding that really almost everything that he said is happening today. And he was being the so-called you know devil's advocate um, but Chris, we're going to talk about some of the causes and we're going to talk about some of the, the fallout from this is we've got Christians that are, they, they're not as biblically literate. That's a problem. I mean, I know we're supposed to study on our own, but if many of us in America are not being fed and equipped at our own churches, we're already at a deficit. And so we're going to talk about that when we come back on Stand Up For The Truth with Pastor Chris Quintana and Mary Danielson, and we're going to talk about how even universities started hiring chaplains, and the chaplains weren't even Christian anymore, and no one even raised an eyebrow, and now we're looking at our churches having the same sort of problem. More on Stand Up For The Truth when we come back in a minute. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Welcome back. Uh, Chris Quintana is our guest today. You can get more information on him by going to Old Path Ministries. Chris, give us that website. It is oldpaththeology.net. Oldpaththeology.net. So a couple years ago, many of us laughed uh, when in Harvard University— let me just go back. You know how Harvard was started, right? By pastor, minister, theologian John Harvard, and how most of the earliest graduates went on to be pastors and theologians and ministry leaders, and now look at um, their—anyway, the worldview just flipped. But Harvard hired an atheist chaplain a few years ago, an atheist chaplain. Now, most universities probably have someone that is more aligned with DEI— diversity, equity, and inclusion, and our atheists. But what we're seeing now, which is fascinating, in our church is not necessarily atheists, but those who would maybe fall under syncretism as a worldview or religious pluralism. 
Uh, Chris, one more stat from this Barna research. Um, among evangelical pastors surveyed, 30% said they do not believe their salvation is based exclusively on confessing their sins through repentance and accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. So now we're getting down to the basics of the gospel message. So your thought on that, uh, 30% do not think that's a necessary part of coming to the Lord. Which just basically tells you that that means that 30% of the people with the title aren't even regenerated spiritually. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So there's really not, there's no mystery in that, but most people aren't going to say that because it's too provocative, but it's just, it's self-evident. Yeah. Um, and of course, this is what I would expect uh, the closer that we get to the Lord's return is that the, the church is a, is a disaster by the time he shows back oh, up yeah. and, and comes and rescues the church before he, you know, meets out the, the judgment that's due to this earth. He, let's remember that the earth has already been judged. It's only waiting for his justice to be meted mm-hmm. out. A redemption, yeah. That, that's already, that's a, a settled issue. Yeah. Even Jesus in his own words in chapter 3 in John pretty much said the world's already condemned. Basically, it doesn't need me to condemn it. It's already condemned, but I came that it could mm-hmm. be saved. So mm-hmm. if we can remember that, that the world isn't going to just pull itself up by the bootstraps, it's in the crosshairs. Mm. And what we're looking at now is a time when it's, it, there's a precipitous decline in every conceivable measure. Show me anywhere that you can point to and say, man, that's moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't exist. So that's the worldview that I would expect, mm-hmm. um, or that's the world condition that I would expect because of my worldview. Mm-hmm. But if my worldview is based on you can be saved other ways other than through Jesus, I'm not even talking to a brother at that point. Mm-hmm. I don't care what title you hang around yourself. Right, and we have a bunch of hirelings in the pulpit Narcissists. Narcissists in the pulpit, um, you know, yeah. instead of shepherds and those that are really called. But, you know, I mean, the true church, the Bible says, narrow is the way and few there be that find it. So this this huge visible church isn't necessarily even the church. Um, we have wheat and tares. We have that also that we're dealing with. And, yes. oh, it's enough to you know make you sigh, but all creation is groaning. I'd like to hear that for a day. Yeah, And Barna <laughs> said that only about one in three pastors surveyed interpret the world through the lens of Scripture, mm. about one in three. Oh, man. Um, this is where we're at today. Chris, uh, one more stat, and I'll let you comment on it. Nearly 40% of evangelical pastors reject that there is absolute moral truth and instead contend that each individual must determine their own truth. Now, looking at society and our culture, that's a no-brainer. Hollywood, the pagan enter, enter, well, entertainment system and education system and our government. But we're talking about church leaders here, and that's what's tragic about this. Sure, and that, that's what tells you how much the culture has, has been able to make inroads into the church. So what we should realize is, is how worldly the church has become because the people that have been left in charge of governing the church are themselves very much worldly. So that influence makes its way in the front door. And if the church is not accustomed to learning through the Scripture and being taught through the Scripture, they're not going to see the world around them as God sees the world around them, and they aren't going to see the warning signs that he gives in Scripture as well. So all of this is right on schedule as far as I'm concerned. 
Mm-hmm. Don't you think the seeker-sensitive paradigm is is was really the death knell of oh of you know the church model? And they say, well, it's just another way to do church. No, it's not. It's a anti-gospel, pro-man. It's apostate. Yeah, I mean, it, the emergent really church is. came out of that. Yes, church growth move, seeker-sensitive yep. movement. Yeah, didn't what it, a Chris? mess! What a mess! Sure, and that that is the church movement that greased the skids for the decline. Uh, that's when we started to really pick up speed because, like mm-hmm. you guys had talked about, the the teachers. Of, or the pastors teaching their narcissistic view of the scriptures, everything's oh, about you. And <laughs> wait a minute, yeah, wait, wait, wait a minute. I got to go back. You got to say that again because I I just want to make sure people caught that. The nar- the the what? Narcissus. Yeah, Instead of exegesis, yeah. the narcissus. Yeah, exegesis, eisegesis, and narcissus. Yeah. The I me my Bible is that what they use? I me my. Yeah. It's, it's actually the trail mix version because you have all kinds of variety of things. You just take what you want. To well, there's a lot of nuts in there too. I mean, yeah. don't forget trail mix has a lot the of trail nuts. mix. <laughs> we used to well, I, we used to call that the left coast version, the yep. the uh, fruits, nuts, and flakes, yes. the trail mix. So, okay, this is what was also revealing to me about these new stats. Barna said. Here's what the confusion about religious pluralism and the lack of biblical literacy. Barna said 51% of adults, okay, that's about half of adults in America, claim to live according to a biblical worldview. They claim they're Christian or they claim to have these beliefs, but when their beliefs and behaviors are measured by what he calls the seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview, only 6% of American adults actually have a biblical worldview. Chris, again, no surprise, but that's interesting that people think they believe a certain thing, but they really don't. Mm-hmm. Sure, and I would say, can you imagine how much worse that is in much of the more godless parts of the West? And if it's that bad here in the States, imagine where it is everywhere else. Mm. It, it really does, mm-hmm. to me, it kind of puts flesh on the bones of what Jesus said mm-hmm. or meant when he said that when he returns, would he even find faith on the earth? Mm. So, of course, it was more of a rhetorical question. Of course, he'll find mm-hmm. faith on the earth because there will be the faithful. It's more of a way of trying to throw a glass of cold water in your face and say, yeah, it's going to be that bad. <laughs> yeah. And in cultivating a Christian worldview, people don't even know where to start with that because they don't know their Bibles. But, you know, where their view of the world or their personal view based on their flesh or their feelings conflicts with the with the Bible, the Bible is the one that wins. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. But if they did, it would go a long way towards cultivating that Christian worldview to, to you know, make sure that they are actively letting the Bible be their guide instead of their feelings or their narcissus. Sure. Well, think about it this way. How many people don't like the Bible because it offends their sensibility? Right. As though somehow God would say, well, then let me change everything because mm-hmm. I don't want to have your sensibilities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <Yes. laughs> he doesn't say things in an optional way. He doesn't say, you know, I'd like to do this, but I need your permission kind of a thing. Um, but uh, oftentimes the, the Bible is presented in such a way that you can kind of just if that really offends you, we just won't talk about that. You can leave that alone, and mm-hmm. they find all kinds of ways to explain it away. Um, but if, if we're going to come to the Bible and say, I, have, I, cannot, I cannot have preconceived notions, I'm not to read into the text, I'm to read out of the text. Mm-hmm. And if, if that's the approach and the way that a Bible or a church teaches the Bible, is we come to it and our presuppositions have to be checked at the door, our sensibilities need to be put on mute, 
and everything else just needs to be, this is what the scripture says, and anything that is contrary to it, fine, let it be contrary, but you'll pay the consequences for it. Mm. Well, amen to that. I saw a photo, I don't remember where I got it the other day, that I had such mixed emotions over this. And I'm going I'm to explain this to you, Chris, because obviously you can't see it. There was a big church building that had a, a big for sale sign out on the front lawn. On the church building itself, there was the big rainbow welcome, welcoming flag, right? Big rainbow flag. Right next to that was a Black Lives Matter flag. And on the marquee, it said, Wisdom's Table, Opening and Affirming, 930 Worship. And so you're going, okay, no wonder there's a massive for sale sign on the front lawn. But isn't that a, a sad reflection? I mean, I'm, I'm glad that church went out of business. Mm-hmm. But isn't that a sad reflection of kind of where we're at in, in a way in America? Mm-hmm. Well, what that tells you is that the denomination that, to which it belonged and the pastor's and the people in leadership, they were the ones who were for sale first. So yes. They bought in. They were purchased. And so the devil bought them and got in the front door, and, you know, it, it just it, it collapsed of its own corruption. And by the but way— It's not as—yeah, hmm? go ahead, go ahead. It, it's not as though there aren't a whole, a whole bunch of other ones just waiting to take their place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And denominations are dividing over— over the biblical truth versus conforming to the world. Mm-hmm. And it's very mm-hmm. sad to see it, but, uh, you know, it's prophetic, and it starts with the leadership. And didn't Peter warn about false teachers, and then Jude said, they're here, they've crept in already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And here we are 2,000 years down the road, and you have most churches say it could never happen. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Some naivety there. Um, we've got five uh-huh. minutes left, uh, Chris, and it's, it's just been a blessing. I know we've jumped around a little bit, but I just want to allow you to just encourage some of our listeners. A lot of them can relate to what we're talking about when it comes to church leaders and maybe their own pastors. Maybe they're not apostate, but maybe they're really lacking the courage to preach the whole counsel of God or to to really be salt and light in our culture and do anything outside of church walls because of the unpopularity of the gospel. So speak to those listeners because we get a lot of emails on asking for, do you know, here I live in such and such a state, can you t- direct me to a good church? So give some advice to some people who really need to be Bereans and study at home, but what can they do? What are, what are they to, to do in this situation? Honestly, David, I think it's a, a matter of just recognizing where you are in time. And uh, to me, I think it's just a great analogy because everybody's familiar with it. But the World Cup just ended a little while ago. And every game is 90 minutes. But because of injuries and stoppages and everything else, they'll have that additional amount of time at the end of the game that exceeds the 90 minutes. And, you know, without trying to become just, you know, too provocative, I think that the game has long since expired, and we're just in that last little bit of mm-hmm. the injury time, and the Lord's coming soon. Mm. Whether that will happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, who knows? But I just know this, that, it, that things are, have changed so radically in such a short amount of time, mm. and they're never going to go back to where they used to be. Mm-hmm. Now, that is not something that troubles my heart and mind, because I know how it ends. Yes, And my, my sojourn through this life is only going to be a certain amount of time, but my eternity is the issue. So what I'm more interested in is what happens 
in the preparation before I go to meet him and how can I be used of him to make his word known. And so that's why even here in my little corner of Texas, I'm not a, a pastoring over a church in the four walls, but I still get to teach through the Bible. And that's really the thing that helps mm-hmm. not only understand where we are in time, but it helps you also be rooted and grounded in what really matters so that you don't freak out over all the crazy news. Mm. Well, three minutes left, and we just want to encourage you guys um, listening right now. We know that we cover a lot of hard topics here and, uh, you know, a lot of news from the biblical worldview and and through that lens, but a lot of things that are sometimes disturbing to talk about. But um, a lot of people don't know. You'd be surprised, I think Mary wouldn't, but Chris, how many people are, are just now catching up? And maybe waking up, and I think COVID maybe had a play in that, Mm -hmm. how the church reacted to the government saying you're non-essential and what happened with the vaccine. I think a lot of people are slowly starting to wake up, but I I agree with you. We've got to understand the times because I think it is a little too late. So we just want to encourage people to draw near to God. Chris, two more minutes left. Um, Oldpaththeology.net, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, correct oldpaththeology.net. We're going to have to do this again because it's always fun Mm -hmm. to bring you on. And um, we just appreciate your time, brother. And we will hopefully see you uh, within a couple months. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I'll be out there for for the conference in Appleton at the end of April, hopefully. And uh, it's always fun for you to, it's always fun when you invite me on because I I just like to lob a few grenades in the tent and run away. (laughs) So it's always, uh, well, you? It, no. <laughs> That's funny. That's Not our Chris. We didn't, we didn't do much of that today. But anyway, um, hey, Chris, brother, thanks so much. Uh, God bless you. Talk yes. to you soon. Thanks, Chris. You as well. Thanks so much. All right, guys. So um, coming up on Monday, let's just go, and I'm just going to look at our schedule. First of all, I'm going a couple weeks ahead. Uh, Curtis Bowers is on the schedule. Gary Ka, Seth Gruber, Alex Newman, Julian Appling next week. But Monday... We're going to talk about this. It's kind of eye-opening what happened with DeMar Hamlin and the Buffalo Bills when he collapsed and went into cardiac arrest during Monday Night Football. God Talk is even allowed on CNN and ESPN. You wouldn't believe it. There's even a live prayer. People are talking about prayer. And I believe this is a God moment. He's using this to draw more people to him, maybe bring more people to their knees. It just gives us an opportunity to recognize our own mortality. So there are some good things. It's kind of a Romans 8:28 moment. We will talk about that on Monday and any of the latest developments in the health or the progress of DeMar Hamlin. So guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, God bless you. And as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.